Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember, subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. This week's Fiber for Breakfast brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Wesco. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Fiber Broadband Association's Fiber for Breakfast. We're now in our 51st episode of 2023, and I am super excited as today is our fourth episode of our Quantum Series, sponsored by Cubatech, you know, in an effort to educate our audience on the amazing advancements of quantum technology and quantum network made possible by Fiber Broadband Networks. Before we kick off, I'd like to thank Wesco, the platinum sponsor of Fiber for Breakfast, and our gold sponsor, Network Connects. Also like to thank Cubatech again for sponsoring our quantum series. You know, on Friday, NTI announced that it has, has approved Louisiana's bead initial proposal, unlocking the first 20% of its $1.3 billion funding allocation. So congratulations, Vanith and Thomas and all our friends down in Louisiana. You know, we held our first regional Fiber Connect workshop in Baton Rouge nearly two years ago. Nadir, can you imagine that was nearly two years ago? Uh, and it is amazing to see the tremendous progress that the Gumbo team is uh, as they work to get every home and business connected with fiber in the Pelican State. Uh, the state bead initial proposals are due on December 27th. So that's a week from today. Uh, so get your proposals into NTI and the funding has begun. So start your engines. Uh, speaking of 2024, our first regional Fiber Connect workshop will be next year will be on February 8th in Richmond. We have an amazing lineup of speakers, including our good friend Joey Wender from Treasury, who still has a billion dollars left to spend on infrastructure, broadband infrastructure from Treasury's Capital Projects Fund. So registration for Richmond is now open. So please register today as this event will definitely sell out quickly. You know, our upcoming workshops after Richmond, we have Little Rock. In April, um, Park City or Deer Valley, I guess, in June, Des Moines in September, Albuquerque in November, and our, don't miss our regional Fiber Connect Big Daddy um, Conference in Nashville, July 28th to 31st, and that is going to be epic. Also, please join me this morning at 11 a.m. Eastern for the epic conclusion of Where's the Funding? You know, it's been a great series as we've explored issues such as the 25% match and letter of credit. And today's final epic finale, I guess, will include uh, Alex Buffett, Rosette, um, the grandson of Warren Buffett's late sister, Doris. And Alex is the co-CEO and co-chairman of the Boston Omaha Corporation. And he also has a rural broadband, he runs a rural broadband operation in Vermont. So I hope you'll join us here following this at 11 a.m. Eastern. That brings us today's Fire for Breakfast session with Dr. Duncan Earl. He's a physicist and founder of Cubatech, who's going to be discussing quantum technology and securing critical uh, infrastructure and sensitive data. And last week on Fire for Breakfast, we had our great friend and research partner, Mike Render, who shared with us the latest numbers on fiber deployment. And no surprise, fiber posted another record, passing nine more million homes in 2023, beating last year's deployment record of 8.3 million homes. So we're at 51% of the nation covered with fiber, 
and we will get this job done here in the next few years. Uh, today on Five for Breakfast, our guest is Dr. Duncan Earl, a physicist and founder of Cubatech, who's going to be discussing quantum technology, securing critical infrastructure and sensitive data. Uh, a physicist, Dr. Duncan Earl is the founder of quantum networking company Cubatech and has spent nearly 20 years conducting energy and defense-related research and development at Oak Ridge National Laboratories in the field of quantum sources, quantum computing, and quantum cryptography. Today, uh, Duncan's focus lies squarely in applying his findings towards building quantum networks and critical uh, first gears to the upcoming quantum-enabled network. A nationally recognized pioneer in the field of practical quantum applications, Earl holds numerous patents and served on steering committees for organizations including QED-C and NIST and frequently advises policymakers about quantum network solutions and some, to some of the country's foremost challenges. So welcome, Dr. Earl, and for audience, please type in your questions. I hope you guys have some really tough questions because uh, I love challenging Duncan. So um, let, let's get things rocking and rolling, Duncan, and I'll turn things over to you. Sounds good. Thanks, Gary, and really appreciate the opportunity to, to speak again uh, this morning. Uh, good morning, everyone. So, so this presentation today is, is really focused on how we secure sensitive data as we move into uh, the age of quantum computers. It's a, a real challenge, which I hope to be able to uh, share at least at a high level in this presentation. And uh, it's also a challenge that I think the fiber broadband community may very well be asked to help solve. So uh, from a, a national security challenge, uh, the fiber infra infrastructure we have in the United States could potentially provide a solution to the problems that we're going to talk about in this presentation. To get there, it's a bit of a long walk. I got to talk about cryptography and I got to talk about quantum, but we'll eventually get to uh, how the fiber infrastructure really is key to securing data uh, in the future. So let's uh, let's jump in. If we could, let's go to the next slide. And I'll give kind of a uh, a little quick history lesson on how we, we got to where we're at today with the cryptography that we, we use. So I, I think some may already know that today when you get on the internet and you use a credit card to, to purchase something, at the end of the day, what's securing those communications and that transaction is something called public key cryptography. And it's supported by a public key infrastructure, which usually goes by the acronym PKI, and that's what is securing a lot of these, uh, the, the majority of communications uh, around the internet. And the, the process we went through to get to a PKI solution that we now use is a really long one. It starts all the way back with mainframe computers in the 40s and 50s and 60s, uh, developing into desktop computers by the mid uh, 1980s. And the, and the vision that you could start to connect these desktop computers into a worldwide network, which really became evident uh, in the 1980s, and, and therefore the security challenges of doing that uh, came to the forefront. And it's particularly hard to connect a network of computers in a secure way because everybody is not meeting each other. You know, when you're talking to somebody over the internet, it's not like you're having a face-to-face -face conversation where you can freely exchange security information. It's a much harder thing to do with so many unknown parties. But, um, but, but a really clever solution, the, the PKI infrastructure was developed in the late uh, 1980s to handle that security uh, issue. And in 1989, the PKI framework, or, or at least uh, some guidance on how to implement 
that type of infrastructure, which includes uh, you know, certificate authorities and digital signatures and lots of other components. That whole framework was really defined in the late uh, 1980s. And by the middle of the 1990s, you know, companies like Netscape were already implementing and using uh, PKI. And, and, and now it's, it's used everywhere. It's just ubiquitous. You don't even really notice it anymore. It's in the background protecting everything. And today, it's a very secure uh, form uh, of uh, cryptography that we use uh, with the internet. Uh, it was, again, preceded by the development of computers, and, and it was very much led by computers uh, first before these techniques were put in place and the networks adopted them. That's gonna be an important uh, point I'm gonna come back to, but uh, at least this gives you a little bit of the history of how we got to where we're at. If we could, let's go to the next slide and look at what underpins public key cryptography. This, again, is a very high level, so uh, I'm not diving into the details and I am oversimplifying it, but you can kind of think of it as, as based on this idea of one-way functions. So once a computer had been developed and researchers were looking for a way to secure communications, they recognized that computers were really good at doing some problems in one direction, but bad in the other direction. And a very easy example to share is if you multiply two prime numbers together, you get a unique answer. And so if I multiply 5,953 times 7,919, even with a simple calculator, I can do that calculation very quickly. But if I turn that problem around and I say, I've got 47,141,807, and I know it's made by multiplying two primes, you know, can we find those two prime numbers? That, that problem is actually a lot harder for a classical computer to do, especially when the number gets really, really big. It's gotta go through many, many combinations to try and find out what the right uh, answer is to this, this uh, problem. So one-way functions are basically what underpins um, uh, modern cryptography today and definitely public key infrastructure. And it's based on assumptions we're making about how computers work and how quickly they can compute these, these types of one-way functions. So the problem is what happens if a new computer uh, comes along that makes that assumption no longer true. And if you've been following this quantum uh, series, you know that there is a new type of computer, not just a faster computer, but fundamentally a different type of computer coming called a quantum computer, and it's threatening this, this basic assumption. So what happens when this new type of computer comes along? If we go to the, the next slide, not, not to uh, exaggerate it uh, too much, but uh, uh, it, it's, they, they call it the cryptocalypse. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, uh, don't panic. But it is, it is a pretty serious issue uh, if we do develop these new computers and they can uh, break the assumptions of the cryptography we use today. Uh, sometimes the uh, occurrence of the cryptocalypse, cryptocalypse they call Q-Day because it's the day that quantum computers become fast enough to break these, these assumptions or powerful enough to break these assumptions. So, so if you think about a, a quantum computer, uh, just at a very simple terms, it, 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 the reason it's a threat is because we do know for a fact that quantum computers can break some of these one-way functions, specifically the, the factorial function based on primes. Uh, there's already algorithms that have been developed. We've known about it for a while. And, and so there, this concern has been out there for a while. However, quantum computers have been accelerating in terms of their development. 
a week or two ago, 60 Minutes had a great, you know, uh, overview on it, where, where people are really predicting in the next few years, we're going to see powerful, uh, game-changing quantum computers uh, that are available commercially for others to use. Who knows what's available in the non-commercial space, but it becomes a, a big concern how quickly these computers are coming to the to the forefront. So, so we've got to be prepared to, to solve this cryptography problem uh, because they are coming. Uh, we've had this problem before, but it, but it actually kind of it is a, a bigger issue this time around. So just like we develop classical computers, we're currently developing quantum computers. The problem is those computers, when they occur, they immediately cause our networks to become insecure. And so um, although we are trying to find newer algorithms, that can uh, are difficult for quantum computers to solve and for uh, classical computers to solve. It's not exactly clear if we can develop a quantum algorithm to run on these quantum computers to replace these one-way functions when we don't even yet have the, the computer. So, so the fact that the computer is coming first and these algorithms are being developed second, that worked the first time around, but the second time around, it's gonna create this region or this period where we have insecure classical networks until we find the right algorithms. Uh, so that insecure period could last a year, 20 years, 100 years. We're not sure how long it could last, but uh, you know everybody's hoping it won't last even a, a day, and we're betting that we can come up with these algorithms that are uh, replacements for the ones we use today. That's being led by NIST. It's also part of the Quantum Computing Cybersecurity Preparedness Act act that the White House announced uh, last year to take all federal agencies and try and upgrade them as quickly as we can to post-quantum algorithms that we believe uh, will survive a quantum computer attack, but we have no guarantee. So, so we're going through a transitionary period here where we could have very insecure networks uh, as we try and resolve this issue. It's not even clear if we can come up with new algorithms given this new computer. So it, it brings us to a question of, you know, what are we going to do if, if we don't have these algorithms in place? And there fortunately is an alternative. It's called quantum key distribution, and it's available today. It's actually been around for, for about 20 years, and it can secure the network. But it's not based on mathematics. It, it's based on hardware and physics, and it requires fiber, which is, which is why uh, it's part of this, this series. Um, it does require an investment in the fiber infrastructure to roll it out. Uh, next slide, please. I'll, uh, I'll try and speed this up a little here too because I don't want to get uh, down a rabbit hole with explaining it, but just at a very high level, what's happening is this is a, a, a method for producing cryptographic keys that is based on the randomness inherent in nature. It's not based on mathematics, it's really based on physics, and it leverages something called entanglement to securely distribute these keys between different parties. Uh, because it's not based on mathematics, it's based on physics, it doesn't matter how fast your computer is, you can't crack this code, but you do have to have a way to deliver quantum particles uh, to different parties, which means you have to have an optical fiber delivering something called entangled photons. And we're seeing this technique really take hold in Europe and Asia, but not yet here in the US. So uh, I won't have enough time to go into this uh, really well, but uh, fundamentally there's this property of quantum particles called entanglement that allows us to create secure keys between two parties, say an Alice and a Bob. And just really quickly, these are, these are photons, entangled photons 
that gets shared over optical fiber. But just to try and give you a, a feel for what's happening here, we can kind of describe it through entangled coins. So imagine that Alice and Bob each have a coin and it's a special kind of coin called an entangled coin. And what that means is that Alice and Bob can flip these coins in their left hand and for their right hand. And every time they flip the coin, they get a random result. Sometimes it's heads, sometimes it's tails. But if Alice and Bob flip their coins using the same hand, let's say they both use the left hand or they both use the right hand, then every time they get a result, although it, it, it is random, uh, it, it agrees between the two. So they might randomly flip it, but they're both gonna get heads or they're both gonna get tails as long as they use the same hand to do it. That's kind of this entanglement property. And it, it's, uh, it seems almost magical that these two coins can have this correlated response, uh, even though they're not communicating with each other. But that's fundamentally what these particles are doing. And every flip of the coin is another bit in the key uh, that is known to only Alice and Bob. They don't actually have to uh, share this information openly because they have this entangled particle they can build these keys using this, uh, this entanglement property. There's a lot of really great explanations online, so I'll have to, to uh, you know, just recommend those. They can give you a much better understanding of how this property works. So because uh, you need optical fibers to distribute these entangled photons to Alice's and Bob's, this is the type of solution that you would really want to roll out first for critical infrastructure, things like power grids, hospital systems, financial organizations, Obviously, the military is already uh, looking at this uh, some uh, as well. So being able to at least secure our critical infrastructure as we go through this kind of tumultuous time in cryptography makes a lot of sense. And, and we're starting to see more and more people focus on critical inf infrastructure as, as a, a, the first step for quantum key distribution. Okay, I'll make this kind of the last slide because I know I'm running out of time here, but but where, where are we at today with this? If you really dig into quantum key distribution, this physics-based form of, of security, and you ask, you know, is this taking hold? Who's investing in this? Is this really something that's coming? The, the answer is yes, but it depends on where you live. Uh, today, numerous companies around the world are providing QKD products. They have for the past 20 years. It's a, it's a very well understood technology and it's been productized. The QKD protected fiber optic networks are mainly in Europe and Asia, but they are quickly growing in those regions. Uh, here in the United States, our government is still not um, convinced that this is the right approach. And so QKD adoption in the US has been pretty, pretty stagnant so far. A lot more emphasis on trying to go the mathematical route and find a post uh, quantum computing algorithm that can survive. And again, that's led by, LISP, uh, by NIST. Um, and so quantum protected fiber networks in the U.S., you can see them, Cubitech has built some, number of companies have done some demonstrations, but they're really just demonstrations. They're not yet uh, really, you know, commercial networks that are being utilized and secured using QKD. The emergence of quantum, commercial quantum networks that are general purpose that could be used for quantum computing and for sensing applications, that could change it because it does provide now an infrastructure for QKD to run upon, and so we'll, it'll be very interesting to see how that's going to uh, advance QKD uh, here in the U.S. But one thing that is definitely for sure is that there's a big question about whether or not the United States is maybe making a mistake by not investing in fiber infrastructure and preparing it with quantum key distribution 
uh, equipment like they're doing in Europe and they're doing in Asia. And really in the next two to three years, we're going to find out if that was a good decision uh, or a bad decision because again, this cryptocalypse is coming. Uh, if we are behind the eight ball, it will be the fiber broadband industry that the government turns to, to say, how can we quickly get this infrastructure in place to catch up with Europe and, and Asia and make sure we have a secure network for the foreseeable uh, future. So this is just a primer on the problem, just kind of laying the groundwork for, for what may be coming in the next few years. And I'll go ahead and stop it there and, and take any questions. Well, Duncan, again, this is fascinating. Um, so Q day, I mean, a year out, five years out, what, what 10 years? I mean, what, what, what's the horizon on that? So, you know, the, the old joke in quantum is it used to always be 20 or 30 years before a computer uh, was going to be here. And of course that just kept getting pushed out. But now, uh, you know, when you look at the 60 minutes and, and the presentation and the articles on quantum, really the leaders are talking about somewhere between three to five years for useful quantum computers. And that's in the, the public sector. So if you kind of multiply the uh, capacity uh, in, in the more classified uh, regions of the world, then you can see that we're actually a lot closer to having a computer that could potentially uh, break the cryptography today. So, so you're looking at probably three to five years before the uh, concern gets to the point of, of uh, panic, but uh, that is, is very close. Uh, and in addition to that, you've got to develop and implement the solution. So if you're going to have a problem in three to five years, you kind of need to be implementing the solution, you know, five years ago. So, so that's, that's the real challenge. So this is eminent, right? I mean, this is not fantasy. This is going to happen. So we're going to have Q-Day. And is PQA, you know, this post-quantum algorithm, is that the holy grail? I mean, is that the it, kryptonite or what? Yeah, if, if we can come up with a, uh, a cryptography algorithm to replace the ones we're using today, that is definitely the most convenient solution. It works with wireless. It works with, you know, all kinds of different technologies. NIST developed, uh, they basically down-selected to a small number of algorithms. Almost immediately, one of them got knocked out. They're, they're quickly sort of finding out the, the staying power of these algorithms. So it's unclear whether or not the remaining algorithms are going to survive all the vetting and, and ultimately prove to be secure. But if they are, that is definitely the most convenient solution. It's just that's a lot of, lot of eggs in one basket. And... So one of the questions that came in is who's working on this? You know, who's going to solve this? And so you said NIST and who else? So NIST is really primarily the the leader. And then they, you know, uh, since the uh, 80s, they've kind of led that cryptography development. Of course, they're pulling in uh, academia, national labs, corporations, everybody to participate in the algorithm uh, development. And at this stage, they've really you know settled on a few of these key algorithms. But, um, but ultimately, that has to then be implemented and supported. You do need to have uh, devices with sufficient computational power to run them, uh, which is going to be really hard for critical infrastructure because they're already kind of only really able to run lightweight uh, crypto. So there's challenges to the implementation side. Uh, we've got to vet these algorithms, implement them, implement them in, in uh, environments where it's difficult and do all that really in a very short time period. Everybody should be nervous about this. I hope that's one thing that you take away from this uh, presentation because it's a lot to do in a short period of time and a lot of risk. I mean, if we have Q-Day, which we're, it looks like that's a, you know, a foregone conclusion, we're going to have Q-Day. 
even if we don't have a post-quantum algorithm for a day, I mean, just a nanosecond, right? I mean, people would scrape all our data in fractions of a second. Yeah. And, and, and the scary thing about, yeah, and the scary thing about QDay is probably the way it will roll out is there will be a, an understanding that a quantum computer of sufficient strength to break our cryptography has been invented by some country. And and how long they've had it, we won't really know. And so for whatever that period of time. Oh, they'll do it quietly. So they'll start to that's, steal that's right. everything. And then so we then, find out that all our banks are drained in the economic <laughs> collapse of the world. Essentially, you'll have to assume everything is compromised, right? So that that's kind of like the worst case scenario for, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so one of the questions came in that you might be able to answer is, how might a municipal fiber help? And maybe you could talk just a second about what you're working on with EPB. Sure. So, so definitely municipal fiber, especially if it's tied in with uh, some of the critical infrastructure in, in a city, like the electrical grid, that's a great place to start using this. In fact, Cubitech worked with EPB in Chattanooga, Tennessee, to show that you could use quantum key distribution technology to secure electrical grid substations. So those are just, you know, uh, uh, communications between distributed uh, substations within a city. That's a great place to start, and uh, uh, that, that's where we've tried to really interject quantum key distribution uh, into the U.S. Uh, infrastructure at sort of the power grid uh, level. However, cities can also build their own quantum networks, not just for security, but to for economic development to, to support quantum computing, quantum sensing, uh, the quantum economy that that is coming. Any of those quantum networks, they also can run the security as an application, if you will, uh, and getting the fiber in the ground to support any type of quantum network is ultimately going to make our, our networks more secure. Does the same apply to blockchain? I mean, is the whole crypto world going to come to a collapse when? Yeah, the whole thing is like big old house cards. <laughs> so, yeah, Bitcoin and, and blockchain, all of that then is is also uh, vulnerable. So, so we really have based a lot on this one assumption that computers can solve problems in a certain way, and that assumption is about to be wrong. So in three to five years, this whole thing's gonna unravel unless we do something about this. And yeah. one of the questions came in is, you know, about the NTIB project. Uh, so right now, you know, we've got this $42 billion gonna get fiber to every state and every house and business. Um, what does the state need to do to be prepared, you know, for this, this quantum future? So this this is definitely critical to to laying the foundation right. I mean that's that's the start is just making sure we have classical fiber networks. Really, uh, the more classical fiber networks we have, the easier it's going to be to transition. The transition from a classical fiber network to a quantum network is something that we're getting a much much better understanding of how to do. I would say let's get the classical networks in first, and then slowly start transitioning those to support quantum uh, activities. Well, so Duncan, as always, amazing. I mean, I don't know if I'm going to be able to sleep tonight. It's just scary. <laughs> we'll but, get us off one way or another. <laughs> well, you know, this is when innovation comes, right? When we get a big, hairy problem, we need to solve, solve it quickly. So yes. thanks for joining. Thanks for sharing your expertise and knowledge and everything you're doing to really advance quantum networks and quantum security. So thanks, Duncan. Thank and I, I hope everybody has a wonderful holiday. And we're going to get back together next Wednesday, where our guest is going to be none other than Tom Cohen, the Fiber Broadband Association's Chief Regulatory and Legal Counsel, is going to be discussing a year in review 
a Washington recap. So if you haven't heard Tom speak, um, you're not going to want to miss this. So thanks, everyone. Have a great holiday, and we'll see you guys next Wednesday. Thanks again, Duncan.